For a number of weeks now, we've been looking at the important theme of rekindling our passion. As human beings, we have the tendency to slip into a lack of genuine spirit-empowered zeal in our lives. And we've looked at many different facets of the areas in which we ought to have a passion for God and how that would be realized in our life. Today, as we're finishing this first half of the summer, this is a call to allow God to rekindle our passion. It's an absolute necessity in our lives. The story is told of Hanley Page. He was a pioneer in aviation, and he once landed in an isolated area during his travels. Unknown to him, a simple rat got on board the plane there. On the next leg of the flight, Page heard the sickening sounds of gnawing. Suspecting it was a rodent, his heart began to pound with those types of planes in those days as he visualized the serious damage that could be done to the fragile mechanisms that controlled his plane and the difficulty of repairs because he was in a remote area and there was a lack of skilled labor really anywhere and materials in that day. What could he do? And then he remembered that a rat cannot survive at high altitudes. So he pulled back on the stick, the airplane climbed higher and higher until Page himself could barely breathe. He listened intently and finally sighed with relief. The gnawing had stopped. When he arrived at his destination, the poor rat was lying dead behind the cockpit. <laughs> However, as believers, we've got lots of things as we are landed here in the world that can get into our lives. Things that many times we don't detect initially, but begin to really uh, do damage to our lives. And when you evaluate it, the only solution, and it always is this way, is that the elevation in our lives needs to climb closer and closer to Jesus. We need to be living spiritually in a place in which areas of the flesh cannot go undetected and continue on. We desperately need to live with a spiritual zeal. Now let me say this at the beginning. The Spirit-filled life always has passion. So really what we're talking about is the flesh versus the Spirit. Sometimes we think that a you know, pretty decent Christian life is okay. I think you're going to see in this passage that is very definitive about this from the Lord that it's not okay. Revelation chapter 3, the final of the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Here God inspires the writing uh, through the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, and God gives him a vision. And to seven uh, actual churches in Asia, to the pastors there, a message is given that really represents the different needs that come up uh, in churches in different eras throughout uh, uh, church history. You see some of these more dominant than others. And certainly this last one is one that has been a problem for the Western world and the church in our time. And so this one here uh, is, to me, one that goes directly to the heart of the mediocrity that you find, the lack of passion in American churches. Read with me, please, uh, starting with verse 14. 
And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the, the Lord, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. If you want to know what Jesus Christ is thinking today, July the 17th, 2022, here you have it. This is the heart of the Savior. This was given to the leadership there at Laodicea to give this message to the church and to all those churches throughout church history that have suffered from the same problem. A little background here quickly. Laodicea was about 100 miles due east of Ephesus, which is on the western part of what is now Turkey. Ephesus, of course, was a tremendous uh, influence as God mightily worked throughout that church. They were about 45 uh, miles southeast of Philadelphia, these two churches you've heard about. He was in the Lysus Valley, and uh, two cities were fairly uh, close by in that valley. It was Colossae and Heropolis, and you find that in the book of Colossians. But the key for Laodicea was that the great Roman road stretching to the inland of Asia from the coast of Ephesus ran right through the center of Laodicea. And so it became a very important center. In fact, other key routes came through it. It was known for the fine quality of famous glossy black wool. Uh, its banking assets were notable. And uh, it was also known for its Phrygian power, a special ointment for eye defects. And so... Uh, this was a very, very uh, influential place. And so to this city, well, more to the church within the city, we read back up in verse 14. These sayings saith the Amen. This is speaking of Christ. This is the one who is speaking. When he speaks, he is the final word. Amen. What he says, that's it. Amen. Uh, he is faithful and true. Everything he says is true. We must not dilute the truth. He will never do that. He will not distort the truth. Uh, and we also need to realize that he is the beginning, the true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. 
Jesus Christ, the one speaking, as we often mention from Colossians, uh, another one of those cities that Paul was writing to the church there. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And then verse 15, I know thy works. He is the omniscient God. So this is our Savior. He's the head of our church. He's the head of every local church. This is what he is saying to the church. And my, the character and the person of our Savior, how we need to listen. So let's look first of all at the condition of the church that precipitated and caused there to be this uh, letter. And uh, it, it is the fact that they were unaware of their condition. While attending a university in Lon London, Mahatma Gandhi, who of course became the leader of India and very strong in the Hindu religion, became almost convinced that Christianity was the one true supernatural religion in the world. Upon graduation, still seeking evidence that would help him make his final commitment, young Gandhi accepted deployment in East Africa and for seven months lived in the home of a family who were members of an evangelical Christian church. That's why he decided to go to that family. He was looking for the evidence that he sought. But as the months passed, according to his own uh, testimony, he saw the casualness of their attitude toward the cause of God, heard them complain when they were called upon to make sacrifice for the kingdom of God, and sensed their general apathy. Gandhi's interest turned to disappointment. He said in his heart, no, it is not the one true supernatural religion I had hoped to find. A good religion, but just one more of the many religions in the world. That's tragic. Let me just say, folks, if we were the kind of Christians that Christ calls us to be here in this message to Laodicea, people would know Christianity's real. Moments like we've been through point out because of the grace of God to the lost world, Christianity, there's something about it. We should be living that way all the time. But you look here. He says, I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I spew thee out of my mouth. They had oh, no idea what God thought about it. Colossae was right up next to the mountains there and had a beautiful, um, just a, a spring and river that came through and they had cold water uh, nothing like coming off of the mountains and uh, pure water. They were known for that. And my, how refreshing and how important that was. Heropolis was in a place that was very uh, much a part of the entire Lysus Valley. It had hot mineral baths that had great therapeutic help for the people. Laodicea, though, is the wealthiest of all the places. It had a problem with water supply. And so it did, it did its best to get water, as you would from wells and all from that area, but the water had the mineral content and was warm. It wasn't cold and refreshing. It was lukewarm. And so what the Lord is saying, I wish you were a blessing, 
like the water at Colossae, like the water at uh, Heropolis, but you're like the water that when you drink it, it makes you sick. You can't even stand it. If you've ever had mineral water that's not the kind that's good, <laughs> like at the Dead Sea, in a moment you spew it out as the language here is. And it's very significant, folks, that they didn't realize how this made the Lord feel. Their lukewarm Christianity. This is pretty graphic. This terminology is met by the Savior through inspiration of His own words for us to realize this is the attitude that He has toward carnal Christianity. Um, the church had no sense of their need. They had no faith. They were static. Uh, they thought they were really something. Uh, they were unconcerned. They were secure and didn't realize that their whole approach to the Lord was devastating to the cause of Christ there in that region. Let me just say this. Thinking one is okay and spiritual when they really are not is really a sad condition. It's one thing to be under conviction and know I need the Lord. It's another thing to think I'm a pretty good Christian. And yet Jesus is thinking, and I hate to say it this way, but your Christianity makes me sick. See, this matter of not having passion, this matter of not having zeal is, is pretty uh, major to the Lord. J.B. Smith, warm-hearted devotional commentator, said it this way, he declares, I will spew thee out of my mouth, just as one feels disposed to do so with insipid lukewarm water. The Greek brings out the idea of ad nauseum more realistically, for it says, I will vomit thee out of my mouth. This sense of loathsomeness on the part of the faithful and true witness in respect to the condition of the church of the Laodiceans is undoubtedly the saddest and most lamentable appraisal of God's professed people in holy writ. And he's right. The language here is very, very vivid. And I do believe, and I think you all would agree with me, that one of the deep problems of American and Western Christianity is, is this idea that we're doing pretty well. We feel good about our Christian life, but in fact there's not zeal. There's not the power of God. There is not that fellowship with the Lord. There is not the miraculous working of God's grace through the life. And what a grief to this one who is the amen, who is the faithful and true witness. They were depending on their material possessions rather than on eternal values. And my, have we not been saddled with that. All of us have faced it for over the last few decades. Now, the Lord Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. James 5.3, Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. And of course in Colossians it says covetousness which is idolatry. And I'm not going to go into detail here but folks I want you to see the description here of what Jesus thinks about carnal Christianity. Verse 17, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, doing well, I'm a good Christian, I'm faithful, 
You know, I'm, I'm not out doing what the world does. I'm doing okay. Knowest not that thou art wretched. That means afflicted condition. Paul uses this term to, to describe himself when he's in the flesh. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? Romans 7, 24. Miserable in a pitiable condition is what that means. Uh, poor, beggarly, extreme poverty, totally destitute spiritually. Nothing of any value is there. Blind, unable to perceive spiritual things. Naked, unclad, without proper clothes, in a position of shame. The carnal life, folks, is worthless and fruitless and offense to the Savior. Well, I not had a good few days. I haven't really walked in the Spirit. Ought to, we ought to all read, go back and read Revelation 3. This is what Jesus thinks about it. That wasn't sort of an oops. That was a tragedy. Because God had somebody for you to touch. God had things for you to do. God had things that for you to learn. The advancement of the kingdom was all about what the Spirit could have done in each of our lives. Unaware of the solution. It's amazing how we just can't see. I've read this before, but I think it's so good from C.H. Spurgeon. Imagine that you're in a round tower with slits in the walls used for shooting through with guns. Now imagine that you are whirled around the inner circumference. Would you appreciate the beauties of the surrounding landscape? No, but there are openings in the wall. Yes, but your eyes are set for objects near and do not have the time to adjust to distance as you are whirled past the slits. It would be as if the wall were solid. So it is with earthly living. The near and earthly wall obstructs the view. An occasional slit is left open, perhaps a Sunday sermon or a personal Bible reading. Heaven might be seen through these, but the eye which is set for the earthly cannot adjust itself to higher things during such momentary glimpses. So long has the soul looked upon the world, and when it is turned for a moment heavenward, it feels only a quiver of inarticulate light. Unless you pause and look steadfastly, you will not see or retain any distinct impression of the things which are eternal." Blinded, not able to see. And so God has given us here uh, counsel. Look at verse 18. We need to look at the solution. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. First of all, buy the true riches, that the only things that is true that are true riches is gold. Gold speaks of deity. The only life worth living is the Christ life. If Christ is not living by the power of the Spirit of God through us, if deity is not experienced and if it is not shown, that life is not worthwhile. He is the only one that's worthy. We are not. We are not worthy to be saved, but thank God we are through Him if we've trusted Christ, and we don't have the power to live the Christian life, but He is the Christian life. It's done through His power, and that's when you're truly rich. To know Christ and to walk in His power and to live His life is true 
richness, and reality. It brings eternal riches, and it brings satisfaction. And then the matter of uh, uh, white raiment, that you won't be shamed. You know, we try to live the Christian life and do right. We cannot live righteously without the power of the Spirit of God. It is Christ's own righteousness that saved us, and it's Christ's practical, lived-out righteousness that allows us to have that whiteness of His life and the, and the holiness in our life that makes a difference. That's why people react to people that trying to live a holy life, but it's all through the flesh. Doesn't look good. Doesn't work. It's frustrating. Hypocritical. Pious. Doesn't do the job of covering. Shame is still there. But isn't it wonderful when Jesus steps in and no longer is that addiction there anymore? No longer is that problem there anymore. You're able to forgive. There's a sweetness in your relationships. The very presence of the Savior is there. It's His righteousness. People don't think about how good you are. They think about how good your Savior is. And, we're, and Paul said, we will one day be manifest. The only thing that will matter is that which Christ did. And Paul said, I want to be manifest right now. Second uh, Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. And then the final thing here is to have our eyes anointed with spiritual salve because we're looking to the Lord and we can receive spiritual wisdom. We can begin to look at life from God's point of view instead of our intellect and our feelings and uh, our reactions. We can think biblically and we can have that hope and that confidence and that discernment to be able to take the steps that we ought to take. Folks, there's nothing more wonderful than having Christ take over in our lives and be able to think right, to be able to see right. Well, secondly, the conviction. In verse 19, he says, As many as I love, Christ loves us. And what's interesting here, this is not the word agape. This is the word phileo, the most noble of all human affection. Aren't you glad that he doesn't just make a choice to love us? Just like you love your family, you have the high, especially when God's working in your life, you have such a deep love for people around you. He has that fullness of love. It's a personal response to us, not just the will to love us and put us first, which the cross proved greatly, but he's involved with us in a genuine relationship. Pastor once remarked, when Mary and Martha sent to Jesus their message, it was not, Lord, he loveth thee, but Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. <laughs> Our love doesn't make a whole lot of difference. His love does. John 15, 9, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you, Jesus said, continue ye in my love. So he's rebuking us here today through this passage because he loves us. He knows what's best for us. Christ convicts us. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, is sent, I rebuke. 
he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We need to respond to, to him and the word. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. that great follow-up on the Lord's Supper. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. And then he says, and chasten. Don't be afraid of that word. That's the word paideia, child train. Everything needed from instruction to a good discipline, <laughs> uh, to ordering our lives, giving us what we need, that's all involved. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For who, what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Down to verse 10, For they verily for a few days chastened us for their, after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be t- partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Do you know that the Lord is constantly endeavoring to get you to a place where your life has passion? Why did all those things happen over the last few months to me? Open your eyes. You see, what's, what's tragic is we'll listen to a message, be in a Bible study, we'll have personal reading, we'll have things that happen in our life, we have things where we're deeply stirred, we go through trials, and we just endure those, and we forget. When all of that is line upon line child training so that we can live a life that is consistently spirit-filled, consistently the Christ life, He will give us everything we need. You're not left out in the cold. Uh, what father will not chasten, will not child train their child if they're a loving father? That's exactly what God does for us. And so he said, I am, con- I, am, I am trying to convict you. I am rebuking you. I am chastening you. I want you to listen. And why? Well, it's because he has a goal for us. In Dublin, some years back, a group of women were wondering what Malachi 3.3 uh, said, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of, of silver and so they decided they go see a silversmith that he showed the whole uh, process. And then they said, well, do you actually sit there while the refining is going on? And he says, I must sit with my eyes steadily fixed on the surface. For if the time necessary for refining is exceeded in the slightest degree, the silver is sure to be damaged. He's watching us because he is refining us perfectly. Uh, and then he said, oh, there's one thing more. I only know the process is complete by seeing mine own image reflected in the silver. That's what the Lord's doing. He wants us to reveal Him. So, what's the confession here? What should we do? A call to godly passion. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. We need to, he's calling us. This is the Savior, the great one who has died for us. 
He is speaking very frankly to us. He knew what churches would go through. He realized that we could be content with uh, mediocre Christianity, and he's being very forthright here. And he calls us to godly passion, and he is telling us that the only way that's going to be is Romans 12, 1, the great follow-up on what our, our salvation means and what our sanctification means. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Full surrender. I mean, dying to what we want and truly trusting God. That's the only way there will be ongoing, refining, growing, and uh, the Spirit-filled life that will please Him. Colossians 4.13, we often talk about Epaphras praying for the church of Colossae there in that valley. And, he's, and the Lord said through Paul, for I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you because he wanted them to have a zeal. And them that are at Laodicea, he knew the problem in Laodicea, and in Heropolis. I'm telling you, it's a wonderful thing when you see people sold out to Christ. Any of you remember the name Henry Solnier, the director of Pacific Garden Mission? You heard him a lot on Unshackled. They say that he served there from, um, as head, heading it up from 1940 to 1986. And even into his 80s, he would be there daily. And he had a lot of pain. But at the invitation during gospel meetings, he regularly went up and down the aisles, putting his arm on the shoulders of sin-ravaged men, taking them into the prayer room to lead them to Christ. Souls. He saw life from Christ's perspective. He didn't care about how much suffering he had to go through. That's passion. That's passion. And so repenting is simply, folks, changing our mind about what we think life is and getting into line with what Jesus says. And my, what a glorious life. The Christ life is filled with peace and joy and the love of God. The Christ life is a miracle life. The Christ life touches many other lives, but our flesh will rebel against it. And we've got to repent of not uh, not allowing the Spirit to have control. Folks, God, let me just say this. How do you know if you're really regularly filled with zeal? People think you're a little bit over the top. <laughs> now, thank God that's not around here that much. But still, you get somebody sold out for the Lord, it's a little uncomfortable being around them if you're not. 2 Corinthians 6.1, we then as workers together with him, all of us, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Vance Havner said, repentance is a change of mind about sin and self and the Savior. And how true that is. And so finally, in, in conclusion, the communion that he wants. Here's the answer, folks. It's not a bunch of do's or don'ts. It's him. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. This is to believers. It's to believing Christians and it is to the church. 
And though we have the Spirit of God indwelling, we are oftentimes, when we're in the flesh, not having fellowship with Him in our spirit and in our life. It's as though He's out here. He's not intimately involved with us. And we've often talked about that. There's this knock at the door. I love what Spurgeon says. There is no cure for lukewarmness like a good supper with Christ. (laughs) If he enters in and sups with you and you with him, your lukewarmness will disappear at once. You can't be lukewarm when you're enjoying fellowship with him. When we turn from our little ways of comfort zone and coping and what we want to do and half-heartedness and when we just say we're all, all in Christ to serve you, he comes in and oh my, the warmth and the encouragement and the freedom that come. And then, as he said, if you'll abide in me and my words abide in you, uh, as John 15 says, uh, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. But if you are fellowshipping with me, you're going to have a life of great spiritual productivity. And it's very interesting, this concludes with, these that take heed to this will overcome and sit with him in the throne. I don't fully understand all that. But how much zeal we have now through Christ's life does make a difference in eternity. I'll leave it there. I don't fully understand. But Christ wants to be the passion of our lives. Philippians 1.21 For me to live as Christ. For me to live as Christ. For me to live as Christ. And that to die is gain. Hudson Taylor said, Satan the hinderer may build a barrier about us, but he can never roof us in so that we cannot look up. <laughs> we can always fellowship with the Lord. And God wants us to be passionate. Every moment should make the difference. We should love him from the depths of our heart. Gustave Dore was putting the finishing touches on the face of Christ when one of his friends stepped quietly into the studio. She looked with bated breath upon the painting. He said, oh, pardon me, I didn't know you were here. And she said, "Uh, Monsieur Doré, you must love him very much to be able to paint him thus. Love him, madam, I do love him, but if I loved him better, I would paint much better. (laughs) If we loved him more, we would be able to serve him much better. Friends, it's just a simple choice to surrender. But I felt like we could not finish this whole series without a call to passion. To rekindle it, we can't, God will. He's the fire. He, Jesus was on fire in glory when you see him in Revelation chapter 1, two chapters before this. And folks, there ought be no day in your life in which you are on fire for God more than you are today. If so, you cannot say you're spirit-filled. I'm not talking about emotions. I'm not talking about experience. I'm just talking about, you know I'm talking deep in your soul. There ought to be no day in the past that exceeds your passion for Christ today. He deserves it. We must glorify Him. These are His words. Be zealous 
be passionate and repent. Let's pray.